2: This is Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland.
1: Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about.
2: Shocked, but not surprised. We've been using that phrase over these last four years of the Trump presidency, but we've been particularly using them and hearing them in the hours since those extraordinary scenes on Capitol Hill in Washington. And shocking is obviously the right word, as we saw the storming of the US Capitol with pro-Trump extremists, uh, some calling them insurgents or domestic terrorists, breaking down the doors smashing the windows and bursting in some of them armed into the United States Congress and it's called cool, it's opened up all kinds of issues about policing but the main issue is about the man who incited those disturbances the man who egged it on and who is still there in office Donald Trump there's even now discussion about the 25th Amendment of the Constitution. Talk also of a speeded up, accelerated impeachment and removal of Donald Trump, even though he's only due to be in post for less than two more weeks. The strange thing is, we thought that the big political story of this week was going to be the Senate runoff contests in Georgia, with control of the Senate up for grabs. And we'll certainly be talking about that, just as we will be talking about the certification, the final official seal on the election victory of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And we're certainly going to get to those. But to start us off, on the line is my fellow Guardian writer in Washington, Kenya Evelyn. And Kenya, on this spectrum between shocked and surprised, where do you place yourself?
3: I'm, sh- I'm shocked at the extent to which it took so long for uh, federal law enforcement to intervene. But the actual vitriol, the, the sense of taking over the government, the insurrection that so many of us, even just being in the D.C. area, were witness to yesterday, it isn't surprising at all. I mean, anything that you can tell a Washingtonian or someone who lives in the Washington, D.C. area covers Washington, D.C. politics is that there's nearly a protest, there's nearly a demonstration almost every day. So you almost expect it, but especially when you're contrasting the preparation, the almost anticipation for violence that we expected and that we saw and that the rhetoric uh, hovered around in terms of Black Lives Matter protests just as recently as this summer in Washington, D.C., to prepare for mostly Black and brown young people to demand justice in the city compared to what seemed like an absence of that in the city in the days and weeks leading up to what we knew to be and we knew was going to be a last stance of many of a faction of this country that feels aggrieved, that feels like this election was stolen from them. You have to be concerned that protesters were able to access the capital so quickly, so easily and for so long.
2: Yeah, I mean, the discussion that's going on at the moment is just how little policing there seemed to be. And of course, you know, the mayor of Washington, D.C. said that, you know, she did issue a curfew right away and called for the National Guard. And we know that Mike Pence, not Donald Trump significantly, did authorize the deployment of the National Guard. And the Virginia you know, sent in some of their own guard as well. But I suppose the, the argument was in a way about how late it was, how slow it was. It didn't seem the kind of instant response that we're used to. Putting aside the issues of policing, and I know they're going to be huge and there's uh, demands now for there to be a full-scale 9-11 style commission into what went wrong on the clear security failure. Taking a step back from all of that, just on the, in a way, the more political point here, who do you blame for the fact that this happened at all?
3: I think we are long past the the point of Blame, I think, even as we, we saw taking place once Congress resumed session last night, the rhetoric became much more poignant and direct and, and, and calling out Republicans and saying, either you are, are, have been completely complicit in, in, in coddling and pacifying the sensitivities of a increasingly deranged president or at worst, you have directly enabled him. Um, and by turning a blind eye to what has been increasingly um, this rhetoric that isn't new, we, we saw him call, you know, protesters in Charlottesville, Virginia. The, you know, we, we saw him say that there were fine people on both sides. So there's no, there's no feigning shock. There's no, this isn't America. This is exactly America. This is America showing you exactly who it's been in its in now 255-year history.
1: The Constitution gives us here in Congress a limited role. We cannot simply declare ourselves a National Board of Elections on steroids. We're
3: seeing Mitch McConnell. We're seeing Ted Cruz. We're seeing these same familiar names who have looked to be cheerleaders and champions of the president's agenda or even just the rhetoric of being an aggrieved lame duck president. We see them now trying to make very small attempts to dial back even just their attempts to one challenge the Electoral College vote or at least try to reach some semblance of normalcy or decency at this point
2: one name that you're not really singling out there or you're sort of skipping over is Donald Trump himself moving swiftly onto his republican enablers i mean is it not in a way pretty direct here which is trump says from november 3rd onwards i won this election it was stolen his followers believe that He tells them that he's never going to concede and nor should they. And so they take him at his word. Listen to him again yesterday on January the 6th when he stands before them and says,
1: Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong.
2: In effect, there it is. There's there's the the Congress. Go there now and make your case. And so this is a 100%... 95% on him, with the other 5% or more, all on those Republicans who, as you rightly say, cheered him to the echo. But Trump is front and centre of this, isn't he?
3: Absolutely. I mean, we cannot deny, and I think that's why we're even seeing, with a little bit of time left in his presidency, we're seeing conversations even of impeachment and removal from office, just to ensure that he can never hold public office again. Because this does not go away with the transfer of power. We know that the president now, the, the lame duck president now, is trying to dial back himself. This rhetoric and early in the morning here in the U.S., released a statement after the confirmation of the Electoral College that he will, you know, facilitate a, a peaceful transition of power. But at the same time, still attempting to disagree with disinformation about the validity and and you know the legitimacy of this election. Republicans understand that this doesn't go away with. President Trump anymore. This is this you because you have leaned into exactly who this man is. Because even the leadership of your party, what you're what we're seeing was Lindsey Graham previously tweeting that president, you know, nominating President Trump will be the downfall of the party. Well, yes, that was absolutely a self fulfilling prophecy. Where now the Republicans have to take ownership for the monster they were they didn't create necessarily create, but they allowed to grow and fester within the White House. There's no attempt, there's no, you know, voyeuristic attempt. To label this or relate this to what we've even seen in our media conversations as third world esque, or attempts to equate this to other countries that have, you know, internal strife or have some type of uh, uprising. This is distinctly an American revolt. This is an American coup that was came from the leader of this country, the president of the United States. And no one can dial that back now. And that's why we're seeing extreme attempts to possibly remove him from that office with little time to go.
2: I, I thought that was also the explanation for that tweet, which you did mention. It came after Trump himself had been booted off Twitter, um, but his press spokesman putting out a tweet saying, Even though he disagrees, he will allow an orderly transition. I read that as being Trump's move to avert the potential deployment or invocation of the 25th Amendment, or even a move to impeach him. In other words, he was doing just enough to make Republicans say, "Okay, don't worry, he'll behave from now till January 20th. But the argument being made by former Bush speech Writer David Frum and Never Trumper Brett Stevens, a columnist in the New York Times, is remove him now. Literally, there's not an hour to spare, because if not, he will. You know, he still has his finger on the nuclear button. He could invoke martial law. He could, you know, use the military to try and stay in power. There's a real kind of fear there. Do you think those sorts of fears are overblown? And don't worry, we can we can sit out the next two weeks and it will all be okay. Or do you think Trump? has not yet hit rock bottom and could do even worse than what we saw on january the 6th yesterday
3: So this has almost become a dire situation for White House officials. As we see in the background where we're hearing rumblings even of the 25th Amendment, we're also seeing that increasingly they cannot trust or they cannot even get the president to understand the need. We see that they are constantly trying to combat a man who's becoming increasingly agitated, increasingly unwell. And so from this, I do think that we are witnessing what has Is continuing to be the seriousness, the reckoning of the seriousness, the effectiveness of his rhetoric, knowing that it can escalate much worse moving forward. I think that's why we're seeing even Republican initiatives to nip this presidency in the bud before January 20th.
2: And what about sort of Republicanism, the Republican Party, whether this will now, and we've said it so many times over the last four years, will this be the moment where mainstream or other establishment Republicans say, "Okay, enough is enough? Now, Lindsey Graham literally used those words, and he's almost the embodiment of this phenomenon, because he was hostile to Trump back in 2016, said it would be a disaster if he was nominated. Then he became an absolute sort of, you know, camp follower of Donald Trump he was right in there super loyalist and he now it seems you know he's changing tone Mitch McConnell massive enabler of Trump as majority leader now that he's going to be minority leader and we're going to talk about Georgia later on uh, but he you know was pretty clear in the early hours of the morning saying no he was not going to overturn the election and was appalled by what he'd seen will Republicans now think okay if it leads to riot and domestic terror, we can have nothing more to do with Trumpism.
3: We're already seeing the exact opposite of that. If that were the case, we would not necessarily have seen, uh, you know, Senators Ted Cruz, we saw Josh Howley, we saw Cindy Hyde-Smith, we saw them still uh, vote for a Pennsylvania objection even after this event took place. So, I mean, this attempt at introspection, as we're seeing, is oftentimes, as many Republicans have been throughout his presidency, self serving. But now you are doing so at the expense of alienating the old guard of your party, those moderate, those more realistic uh, Republicans who do see the extreme faction of their party as gaining too much control. And knowing that they've had to essentially, you know, walk this tightrope this entire time, they're at a point where now the line has been completely drawn and there's no turning back at this point. There hasn't been any turning back. You're either with the president or you're at whatever, whatever semblance of a Republican party is left. And it is so badly stained by this MAGA faction that has maintained control throughout at this, at, at the direction of this president. It's almost impossible now for Republicans to do an about face and say that was them. I'm me. This is I'm different. This, this is me. Now vote but vote for me in 2024.
2: Yeah, I, I'm with you on this. I I always thought that Republicans would only break from Trump and Trumpism if they saw their own voters recoiling from what Trump has done. And yet there is a YouGov poll, it's been done really quickly overnight, asking whether Americans support or oppose uh the storming of the US Capitol. An astonishing number, 45% of Republicans strongly or somewhat support the storming of the US Capitol to overturn the election. As long as that remains the case, um, Republicans are going to see that there is a market for that kind of anti-democratic politics. Josh Hawley has seen it. Ted Cruz has seen it. Donald Trump himself saw it. And that is still there when more Republicans support the storming of the Capitol than oppose it, according to this YouGov survey just out then, you know, you don't want to hold your breath waiting for Republicans to change. Uh, Kenya, uh, in a really sad week for American democracy, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. After the break, we move on to brighter news, certainly if you are a Democrat, as Sam Levine talks us through the results from Senate runoff contests in Georgia, election results that saw the Republicans lose the upper chamber. We'll be right
1: back.
2: Welcome back to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedman. Now, we're going to leave behind the mayhem and chaos on Capitol Hill and look to Georgia for what should have been the biggest political story of the week. In something of an upset, not many on either side anticipated it, the Democrats won both of the two runoff contests for the US Senate that were held in Georgia, and as a result... They have flipped the Senate from red to blue. It is now in Democrat hands, which gives Joe Biden a whole lot more power than he thought he was going to have before he went into these contests. To discuss what happened, I'm joined by The Guardian's voting rights reporter, Sam Levine, who has spent the last week in Georgia. Sam, what do you make of what happened?
1: So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here.
4: The result in Georgia was, there's no other way to really put it than to say it was stunning. Democrats, by winning both races, won full control of the U.S. Senate, which gives them full control of the U.S. Congress, which means that they have control of two branches of the U.S. government. This greatly empowers Joe Biden to pass uh, progressive policies during the first four years of his presidency. These were not races in Georgia that Democrats were expected to win. Georgia is traditionally a very conservative state. Joe Biden was the first Democratic presidential candidate to win there in nearly 30 years this fall. So I think two things happened in the runoff that can help explain why Democrats won. The first is is that in Georgia, there's been a multi-year effort to really engage, register, and mobilize black voters and other voters of color.
3: We believe our chance for a stronger Georgia is just within reach. But we cannot seize it until all voices are heard. And I promise you tonight, we're gonna make sure that every vote is counted.
4: About 10 years ago, Stacey Abrams, who is a Democrat there who ran for governor in 2018, Um, She recognized that there were all of these untapped voters in minority communities who Democrats weren't really engaging with and registering. And there was a long-term investment in registering those voters, getting them out to vote. And on Tuesday in the runoff, we really saw that effort pay off. Turnout among black voters was way up. Um, there's no question that this kind of new coalition of minority voters helped propel Democrats in Georgia um, to victory in both Senate races.
2: We're going to talk about the um, all the huge implications of this in a minute, but just on Stacey Abrams because she's been getting a lot of love on social media and elsewhere. You know, she's also you know being depicted as some kind of wizard when it comes to election machinery and building it and, get, and ground game, getting voters out. You know, what is the secret here? What does she do that is so special that she appears to have turned, as you've been telling us, a state that was in the red Republican column for decades and now winning, you know, in effect a triple because Biden Biden's winning November and now these two Senate seats. What does she do that, uh, you know, other people have not done? I think the thing she did was she really invested. She
4: saw untapped voters and had a strategy. And no matter what, no matter which way the wind kind of was blowing, she was committed to it and investing in turning out these voters. It was a strategy that relied on everything from, you know, I think telling people how to vote, where they could vote, what they needed to vote. You know, I talked to organizers in Georgia who said a lot of the people they talked to You know, just didn't know how to vote. They didn't know where they were supposed to go to their polling location, and so I think part of Stacey Abrams' strategy was investing in resources to help people overcome those barriers. And even though you know Stacey Abrams is the person who's gotten the most attention, there are several other groups. There are groups like Black Voters Matter, groups like Stand Up Georgia that really have done the same and there's been an entire network of these groups now for several years that have been doing this work and slowly slowly mobilizing these voters
3: cnn can now project joe biden has won the state of georgia flipping the state red and or flipping the red state blue i should say
2: donald and we know in, in you know in business and in sport nothing succeeds like success i i wondered to what extent Uh, and what role had been played by the fact that they had won in November, what role did that play in persuading Democratic voters, perhaps particularly African-American voters in Georgia, you know what, despite the history, it is winnable. And therefore, November suddenly made turning out in these run-off contests in January, you know, logical, because you could see that what, you know, what had once been deemed impossible was actually highly possible.
4: Yeah, I think that's a great point. A lot of the voters that I talked to at the polls on Tuesday mentioned that point, that they were surprised by the result in Georgia in November and seeing that, yes, their voice actually could make a difference, that they could flip Georgia blue. That motivated them to go even further and vote again in the runoff election. Runoff elections are typically very sleepy affairs. They have very low turnout. The people who vote in the general election very rarely will come back and vote again in a runoff. That's a kind of dynamic that has benefited Republicans in Georgia. And that just didn't happen this time. People were clearly energized by the result in November and were willing to come back to the polls in record numbers um, in January.
2: We've talked about the You know, extraordinary get out the vote effort of Stacey Abrams and the other groups you mentioned, uh, and the perhaps, you know, tipping point effect of the success in November. Despite all that, most pundits and commentators, including you know us on this podcast, when we looked ahead to 2021, did say that it was a really big ask. It was unlikely Democrats were not expected to win. It's certainly how you uh, began in this conversation. How then did the Democrats do it? And I say that because we knew about the Abrams machine. You know, before we knew about the fact that they already had the success in the bank, and still, despite that, people didn't tip them to win. So, what what changed, or what was there that was perhaps unexpected, unforeseen, that in the end pushed and put uh, Democrats over the line?
1: Hello, Georgia. By the way, there's no way we lost Georgia. This
2: the one factor we
4: have to talk about here is Donald Trump.
1: Your vote tomorrow will decide which party controls the United States Senate. The Radical Democrats are trying to capture Georgia's Senate seats so they can wield unchecked, unrestrained, absolute power over every aspect of your lives.
4: He is still the leader of the Republican Party, and he sent very mixed messages in Georgia uh, after the general election. He claimed that he won Georgia, even though he lost, that the vote was rigged. So he faced this very difficult task of trying to convince voters to turn out there, even though he was also telling them that the system was rigged against them, that their votes weren't being counted. But I think what it did is it created a lot of noise around this race. It didn't feel like Republicans were unified around a single message. The other major factor that happened was just before the end of 2020, Republicans in the Senate blocked an effort to send $2,000 stimulus checks to Americans as part of a COVID uh, relief package. Instead, Republicans would only send $600. These Republicans in the Senate seem to have an endless
1: tolerance for other people's sadness.
4: And Democrats very effectively made this a very simple referendum on that fact. They made it very clear. If you vote for our candidates, we are going to send you $2,000 checks. Republicans are only sending you $600 checks. It was a very rare opportunity, I think, in American politics, where the stakes of an election were so clear and so kind of tangible. You know, that was... $1,400 that people would get in their pocket. And it was very clear to them that by voting for Democratic candidates, that they would be getting more kind of COVID relief.
2: That's what you call retail
4: politics. Exactly. So I think those factors all kind of combined in combination with the grassroots organizing to produce this really extraordinary set of
2: circumstances that propelled Democrats uh, to win in Georgia. So let's just put some human faces on this. Just tell us about the two losing candidates, the outgoing Republicans, what they were like. And maybe just while you're doing that, just explain to us why we had these runoffs, which are unusual, even even in America, but certainly unknown here uh, in, in the UK. Just explain you know, the two losers and and why we had these unusual second round contests.
4: Yeah, so Republicans had two in- interesting candidates in these races. One was Kelly Leffler. She is known as a big Republican donor. Thank you, Georgia. I an- she actually was never elected to her seat. She was appointed by uh, Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, last year to fill um, the seat of a senator who retired. She is extremely wealthy, and it was very easy for Democrats to kind of paint her as someone who was out of touch. She very aggressively embraced Trump. She famously ran an ad where she said, I think she said she was either more conservative or just as conservative as Attila the Hun. And it's so interesting that she lost because it shows that that wasn't enough Um, for her to win.
1: I want to just talk to you very, very quickly about what's at stake here. This race is bigger than me. It's bigger than Kelly. It's certainly bigger than our opponents. This is about the future direction of our country.
4: David Perdue, the other um, candidate who lost, was a much stronger candidate. His race was much closer than the one that Kelly Loeffler was in. Um, There was an interesting dynamic in the final days of the race. He actually had to withdraw from the campaign trail um, because he was exposed to someone with COVID. So he had to quarantine. So he was basically invisible on the campaign trail um, in the final days. But he also very um, aggressively embraced Trump. There was no question that he was trying to court Trump supporters. And again, it just wasn't enough in Georgia, um, which is just stunning given that it's been such a reliably conservative state.
2: And on the other side, the winners, the two new people going to Congress. Whether you voted for me or not, know this. I hear you. I see you. And every day I'm in the United States Senate. I will fight for you.
4: One is uh, Reverend Raphael Warnock the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Um, He is black and very clearly someone who is new to politics. He has never held elected office before. His victory is hugely um, significant for black voters in Georgia. He's the first black senator ever elected from the state. He, in his victory speech, spoke about how his um, mother used to um, pick cotton, and how symbolic it was um, for her to see um, her son now go to the United States Senate. It's a hugely, hugely significant victory.
0: When hundreds of thousands have lost their lives, millions have lost livelihoods, Georgia families are having difficulty putting food on the table, fearing foreclosure or eviction having difficulty making ends meet. Let's unite now to beat this virus and rush economic relief to the people of our state and to the American people.
4: The other candidate, John Ossoff, is much different. He's white. He's much younger. Um, he's in his 30s. He actually ran once before in a special election for Congress in 2017, and he lost. He has presented himself as sort of at the vanguard of, of a younger generation as someone who is bringing Georgia into the next generation of American politics. And I think the message that he set out was to kind of frame himself as someone who could harness this new energy and this new political momentum in Georgia.
2: I often say on this podcast that I am a a natural worrier when it comes to uh, American, well, all politics, actually. And one of the things I worry about a little, especially hearing you say rightly how... Uh, how difficult this was and how conservative a state Georgia has been, uh, whether or not this might be a sort of Alabama rerun. And what I mean by that is Doug Jones um, won an Alabama contest against all the odds two years ago, partly because he just had a completely toxic opponent, uh, and then um, only to lose it two years later, last November, in fact. And is there a fear that this is because of a very unique set of circumstances, Trump going around saying the election system couldn't be trusted, the difference between the retail offer of Covid payments, Covid related payments, uh, you know, particularly problematic candidates on the other side. Could we see this blue, now blue state flip back when those, you, you know, very peculiar set of circumstances are no longer holding in two or six years time? I think that that will be something
4: that's interesting to see. I think there's no question that Republicans are very aggressively going to try and get these seats back. I think there are a a few important differences between Georgia and Alabama. The population in Georgia is just changing in a way that I don't think the population in Alabama is. Over the last decade or so, the population in Georgia has just become um, a lot more diverse, um, a lot more people are moving to the state, and that has um, helped shape kind of the, the democratic lean there. Um, there's also now this infrastructure Um, in place to organize those voters, to get them out and to turn them out. And I think that that is only going to get stronger. That said, I I don't think Georgia is by any means a reliably um, democratic state. I think that it's still a, a very powerful conservative base there. And I think Republicans are very surely going to move quickly to try and mobilize that base Um, for elections in the years to
2: come. Now, the reason why this got national and international interest, of course, was not just because of Georgia, but because of what it would mean for the US Senate. So it now does mean that it's 50-50, Democrat-Republican in the US Senate, with the casting vote, the tie-breaking vote in the hands of the incoming Vice President, Kamala Harris. So therefore, in effect, Democrats in control. Just explain for people who are not as steeped in this as you perhaps might be, what it means to be the majority party in the Senate. What extra power... That gives the Democrats, and particularly why it makes life easier for Joe Biden, the majority party chooses the majority leader, who
4: controls all of the kind of committee assignments in the U.S. Senate. That's which senators sit on what committees. Uh, the majority party has the chair, the chairmanship or chairwomanship of all the committees which basically controls the flow of legislation, decides which legislation gets to come up for a vote, what's considered, what are the priorities of the Senate. That, in combination with the fact that Democrats also hold the U.S. House, the lower chamber in Congress, as well as the White House, allows them to pass legislation without Republican votes. And that is going to be
2: a huge advantage for a Biden Presidency. Sam Levine, there for us in Georgia. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much. Well, if you thought that Trump phone call putting the squeeze on Georgia election officials, trying to get them to overturn the election, was rock bottom for politics in the United States, it turns out you were wrong. It is hard to keep up. But if you want to hear more about what's happening to American democracy this week, look out for tomorrow's episode of Today in Focus, where Anushka Astana speaks to some more of our colleagues about what we saw unfold in Washington, D.C. But that is it from me for now. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please stay safe, and thanks, as always, for listening. <coughs>